Okay, so Rob, you got a question? Yeah, well, question regarding speed work and athletes holding implement in one or both hands. So would you, or if so, how would you change the type of speed drills you do with an athlete that has an implement in one hand, for example, a tennis athlete? Yeah, great question. It's been the subject of a lot of research attention over the last 20 or so years, and they've come up with these mind-blowing conclusions, which for the most part are common sense. Um, the interesting thing is that the minute an athlete holds an implement in any part of uh, any stage of their sporting activity, they're they're thrown in the bucket with everybody else. They're, they're assumed that you, you, it have to be developed with that implement in hand. I like to break it more specifically into two categories. There's an athlete athletic group that have an implement in their hand all the time, and there's athletic groups that have it in only part of their time. So the uh, sport you referred to, tennis, it's in the hand the whole time. The yeah. athletic group, for example, um, soccer or rugby, rugby union, rugby league, etc. Implement not in when it was saying implement, it's not necessarily an implement, but it's still an object uh, on the foot of the hand. Um, it's not there all the time, so you have to discern then uh, what percentage of your time will be speed training without the implement, and what percentage of your speed time is with the implement, and that comes down to the individualization of the training process. And there's a lot that can be discussed there with the athlete that is holding the implement 100% of the time. Uh, as the examples we have, you know, um, uh, lacrosse, um, badminton, squash, tennis, etc. A high percentage of your drills will be done with the implement in hand. It still comes down to uh, the, the wisdom and discernment, though, knowing which drills don't need to or should not be done in hand and knowing how that would change over the multi-year period of the athlete development. So that's a general overview. Have you got any more specific questions? Yeah, excellent. And also, how how do you vary up the surfaces you're running on with a tennis athlete over the career and over the year? Again, uh, the surface is often literally interpreted and 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 therefore abused. There are, uh, are arguments or there's cases where some athletes need to be on softer surfaces at some stage of the year, so that needs to be taken out. Generally speaking, surface specificity is is a, is very high on the transfer list. In other words, you need to be giving that great consideration. But at the same time, you need to be asking the question, what percentage of time and when should I be specific and when should I not be? So there's a greater argument in the GBP being less specific and there's a greater argument in the SBP and leading in the competitive phase to be specific. But then the questions needs to be raised in relation to the individual. What will be the impact of doing that? Now, I'll give you one of, one of the great examples of misunderstanding of this subject. There is a state in Australia called New South Wales, and, they, and in particular in one big city down there, they love to do their hill running in the sand. They love to do sand running. It's just a tradition. It's a beautiful tradition, fantastic. It doesn't serve the majority of athletes that get put on it. I've worked with quite a few athletes out of that city who I've spent ages returning their stretch shortening cycle and their speed abilities that have been wrecked by that non-specific surface. So it, it, it's easy to rationalize. Non, you know, it's GPP, it should be non-specific, et cetera. But there's a lot more questions that need to be asked than that. and and, uh, including at the end of the day, you know, what's the transfer? Where, how's this going to help or damage the athlete? Excellent. Thank you. Hello. So what's on the topic of tennis? Yep. I know you've said about in the past um, how damaging to the body can be, um, an imbalanced sport. You're holding it in one hand the whole time. How, what can we do to counter some of the imbalances that we see with tennis? The interesting thing about um, sports that are uh, unilateral, uh, you know, some disciplines in, in rowing, um, all, all the, the implement hitting sports and throwing sports, etc. We have massive imbalances as a result of, of, of that unilateral nature. And then if you have a sport that runs with an implement, you have a further imbalance. 
because they're locomoting with that, and it's an it's a an added circumstance of aggravation. So it's twice the challenge, which does um, include a lot of sports. But my greatest concern for any athlete involved in a unilateral sport is that the minute they take their first stroke or hit or kick, they're starting to develop their imbalance. By the time most of them understand that there's a problem there and they're getting treatment for an injury, it is so far ingrained that even a panel beater couldn't make a difference. So I have uh, a strong message and a great concern for any athletes in the unilateral sport. The minute you, you engage in that sport, every rep you do needs to be counted from the get-go. And if you fail to do that, which is understandable, most don't, then you need to identify it as early stage possible and be prepared to play catch-up. This lack of willingness to address and reverse these imbalances is the number one reason why sports, unilateral sports athletes have so many injuries. Um, there are so many elite athletes that by the time uh, the, the problem is being addressed, it is so ingrained that that nobody's going to fix it for them and they're just limping to the end of their career. So my main message to unilateral sport athletes, including implement sport athletes, is get someone who understands imbalances and, and, and address the imbalance and reverse the imbalance as much as you can from day one. And I don't think we're ever going to win the battle in many of these cases, but we're going to get very close. And that's that's at least what we should be aiming for. How's that, Robert? Excellent. That's great. Thank you. One other question. Um, if you're doing speed work, for example, how do you assess the transfer of what you're doing there to on the court? That's a great point. And there's so many people use uh, electronic devices and think that that's their answer. That's fantastic. A Western world science will teach you that electronic devices are the answer. And if we've got data, we're a hero. Uh, and I suggest otherwise. But it's not for me to judge them. I just take a different path. So if a, if a coach is a true coach and, and needs to have the ability to to have a feeling and read the athlete movement and listen to the athlete and be able to identify the transfer. The feedback for me comes from diverse sources and really from an electronic or data-based device. The athlete usually knows and um, your eye, your, uh, uh, your eye as a coach or coach's eye should be able to see it. But I understand I'm being very subjective and that doesn't fly too well in the Western world of uh, if we can't measure it, we can't understand it. In fact, it can't even be. It can't even exist if we don't mention it. And that's why so many opportunities in improvement in sport are missed by this stereotypical Western world approach. Excellent. So the art of coaching versus left brain analysing of data, for example. Yes, yes. Such worlds apart. There are too many athletes vying for a gold medal that would say, listen, Listen, Ian, if you can't show me the research and, and show me uh, definitively that there is 2,000 case studies on this um, being uh, double-blind placebo studies, then I'm not going to do it. You know, it just doesn't happen. What we do in sport is then studied historically um, many years later, and, and that's, the, that's the process. So where I deal, the space I deal at, is certainly not determined or limited by um, any conclusion by our, my academic uh, colleagues. John, you, you had a question. Uh, about the, um, the sport with holding an object. So I've heard you talk about this and you say that you either have to balance it out by doing the same motion on the other side or by reversing the motion on the same side. My question is, if you just reverse the motion on the same side, wouldn't you have to also do both on the other side as well? Yeah, absolutely, because it's a one-sided activity. So. The 
solutions are um, fairly complex and many, and, and it's not just about reversing the movement. That, that's part of it. It's also then about understanding length and tensions, etc., which don't just get sorted by uh, even reversal or mimicking reversal of the movement. So, yes, John, it is complex, um, and especially when it transfers through the spine. Very few issues are contained at one end of the body. They ultimately will transfer all the way through the body. And when they transfer through the spine, we've got a whole whole new level of problems because you know, the spine is <coughs> the conveyor of the messages throughout the body. And when that gets messed with, then we're messing with the messages right throughout the body. And then would that be in a sport, something like baseball or golf? That's a great example, a really great example. And as much as I admire athletes in all endeavours and pursuits and disciplines, um, I certainly have a personal, you know, I, I, I kind of cringe without wanting to show emotion when I'm presented with an athlete that is facing these challenges by nature of their sport. They have such unique and high-level challenges. Uh, it takes the best of our abilities to address them and uh, typically involves playing a lot of catch-up. And it's not, not a lot of fun, especially if there's 10, 20 years of catch-up to be done. Okay, so I trust we've addressed that.